uh, didn't pray for but anticipated. Um, I thought maybe we could do something different today. So uh, partway through, um, I'm going to give you a chance to get up and walk around and reflect on what has been shared so far. And uh, I think that's what church is about, right? We come here to connect with God, and then there should be a response to that. So uh, partway through, we'll give you a chance to do that with your feet and with your thoughts. And uh, and uh, it, it's nice to have the room to be able to do that. So... Um, Bonnie said to me this morning in the foyer there, she's like, well, I had a real hard decision today. Uh, do I come in and hear you speak or do I go, I get, are there jets flying over Kelowna today or something? Two jets? Okay. Either way, it's a lot of exhaust. So uh, thanks, Bonnie, for coming and thanks for being here. So um, today's topic, um, we're sharing from our journals, which are really just our, our own reflections and our own thoughts and responses to um, what uh, God is doing in our lives and the learning that we have in Him. And so uh, I want to talk about God's pleasure in carrying out His planned process of events. And uh, last week um, we had uh, a talk by Laura and Lyndon, and they talked about um, different attributes of God. And I love thinking about God. That's actually the way that I connect with God the best, um, is um, just thinking about Him and who He is. And I love the fact that He's so different than me, because if he was the same as me, I don't think I'd respect him. <laughs> and um, just understanding that there's a mystery there, that there's a depth that I cannot comprehend. It's not that I'm thinking about him, and oh, yeah, I got I got it figured out, and I really appreciate it. It's that I can't figure it out. That there's so much depth and um, beauty in that, in the mystery of who God is. He chooses to show us part of him, but there's a whole other part of him that he chooses not to, because I don't think we could take it all in, right? And so um, deepening my realization is what me what makes me love him even more. Um, so today I'd like to share some thoughts about uh, the attribute of God of joy, and uh, give everyone a chance to actively respond to that. Um, so we can deepen our love for him and worship him more deeply. And worship, of course, means that uh, we realize or are amazed at who he is and realize who we are not. And the difference between those is, is really where we're going to land today, hopefully. So um, our first slide here, uh, these are some of the attributes of God. Obviously, there are many more that can fit on a PowerPoint. Um, but Laura Linden talked about, where is it there? The graciousness. Uh, they talked about the immut- immutability of God, the eternal nature of God. Uh, They talked about um, God's faithfulness and things like that. And um, the attribute of joy, did I put that in there? I didn't. Oh, look at that. The attribute of joy, that's symbolic, because that's one that a lot of people miss, right? (laughs) Nice cover. Um, So that's our focus for today, is that God is a God of joy. Um, Some people have described God as being a happy God, and that's kind of a sounds trite, right? That God's a happy God. Um, And yet, there's a depth and a beauty to that as well. So the attribute of joy is an interesting one. God is a God of joy. He made everything for his own glory. And uh, this is not selfishness, of course, because he's God. He is all that. So he takes delight in many things. He takes delight in creating. He takes delight in doing good. He takes delight in saving. He takes delight in the good of his followers as they worship him through uh, their steps. And he takes delight, the Bible says, in his own fame as well. 
Now, we tend to anthropomize him, anthropo, anthropomize him uh, a little bit in our thinking, which really means that we try to make him kind of like us. So when we think about things in our mind, we kind of make them fit who we are, right? I remember my sister looking at the moon one time, and there's like that little sliver crescent of moon, and she's like, oh, look, there's God's fingernail. Well, God doesn't have fingernails, right? It's kind of a metaphor. Uh, it's an anthropomization of who God is, that we tend to think of him in our terms, right? On our grounds, right? And so um, we tend to uh, anthropomize him in our thinking to be like us, and that he thinks like us, but he doesn't. Right? He's God, and he doesn't have uh, the same human-like qualities and limitations that we do. So I found this goofy little, uh, goofy little cartoon here, and of course uh, it's funny because the horses are anthropomized as well. Um, they don't understand that when they comment on the dog that it's really them that, that are different there. Right? So um, God's not like us. Okay? Um, he's all about accomplishing his own glory. And uh, when we talk about his omniscience, we talk about his um, omnibenevolence, his goodness, right? Uh, his, his knowledge, his uh, power, and so on. Um, man, that is so different than us. And it's not just a question when it comes to knowing things, the omniscience of God. It's not just a question that he knows some stuff that we don't. Oh, yeah, well, you know, he kind of read ahead in the script kind of thing, okay? We couldn't, we couldn't handle it. It's the combination of God's qualities that really makes him special. Like, if you knew, I'm sorry if this is morbid, but if you knew, that, if you knew the day that your child would die, how would that change your life? Would you live in fear of that? Would you change what you do? You know, like that would that, how would that play on your mind and so on? Right? So when God knows something, he knows it and he holds it. And he holds it effortlessly because of his goodness and power. If we know something, we wouldn't be able to do that. We'd be crushed by that. Right? Um, knowing the time of our death or knowing the suffering of the abused or what's going on in the whole world. Even knowing about the crucifixion. When you think about it, God, of course, knew about that beforehand anyway and planned it out. God's not only omniscient, but he's also a God of joy and power and love. So this is demonstrated in ways, in God-like ways, that seem really odd to us. Sometimes they can even seem a little offensive to us. Okay. So uh, next slide here. This is from Isaiah, and it's talking about um, its prophecy for Jesus being crucified. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, Jesus, and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And this idea, um, it was the Lord's will uh, to crush him. I think it's the, uh, the North American Standard um, Bible that says the Lord was pleased to crush him. Interesting. There's a joy in that. Another verse from Hebrews uh, 2, verse 2 says, and there's no slide for this one, says, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
for the joy set before him. God holds happy things effortlessly, but he also holds the tough stuff effortlessly. And the knowledge of that, he holds effortlessly according to who he is. Now, God holds that because of who he is, but also because he's in the restoration business. God takes pleasure. God has joy in restoration. In fact, uh, Jesus shows up in the book of Revelation as the Lord who is marked with the scars of restoration. And so it talks about him. um, This is in Revelation uh, chapter 5, verses 6 to 12. I'll I'll read this couple of screens long. But in between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb, Jesus, standing as though it had been slain. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The lamb who was slain, that's repeated a few times in there. I think it's three or four times actually in the whole, the whole, uh, the whole passage. And uh, the question you might have when you read the verse is, why does he still look like he's slain? What, what marks are on the lamb, are on Christ? Why are they still there? If God's in the restoration business, shouldn't he be perfect again, looking like himself kind of idea? Okay? And there's obvious symbolism here, and it's not to be taken totally literally. However, why are the marks there? God's in the restoration business, and he loves it. There's, a, there's an idea from Japan And I'm going to butcher the word. I looked it up, tried to practice its pronunciation. I pronounce pronounce it very white, but uh, it's called kintsukurai. And uh, it literally means golden repair. And I just came across this idea this year. And it really sat well with me in terms of understanding uh, the business that God's in. Uh, In our culture, something doesn't work. I cracked my phone screen or I dropped a plate or or crashed my car or whatever it looks like. Something slightly dinged or damaged or broken or something. We tend to throw it out. Right? Um, We like the new and the the perfect and the up-to-date, the mod kind of stuff. Japanese culture, uh, they value things, history. And so if a plate is dropped, uh, Kintsukurai gets into fixing the plate. And the way they do that is they gather the pieces and they put them back together and they use lacquer and they um, grind off the edges and fit it in back to what it was. And uh, they work gold or silver dust, usually gold, into the lacquer as well. And that's so to accentuate 
the scarring, the, the breakage. So this golden repair means that there's greater honor and value to mended plates. So some examples of that. Have these been showing while I've been talking here? Okay. So um, they show. The scars show. And they're, they're like really plain to see. They're not trying to hide it and make it like it was. They're bringing honor to the, the crackage, the breakage, the brokenness. Right? This plate, uh, I think it's this plate, uh, when I look these up, this is from the 15th century. So these aren't like, some of these uh, are done in, in modern ways. Okay? People will intentionally break them, put them back together, and mimic the style. But like, this is from hundreds of years ago. And it's beautiful. And it's beautiful because of its brokenness. It's beautiful because it's been put back together. But it's beautiful because of the history of that. It tells a story through its existence and through its scarring. So there's greater honor and value to mended plates and pottery and so on because of the care and skill that it took to restore it and the value of its history that it brings. Rather than hiding its brokenness, it's celebrated. Fantastic imagery, fantastic metaphor for what God does in our lives, right? Even the name, Golden Repair, fits great. God takes pleasure not just in creating, but in the restoration of his creation. His joy is in the restoration of what is broken. And so often in our culture, we, we find shame in that. It isn't a time for shame, but a recognition how God is working to repair and restore all things. We don't use shame when we talk about the, the large, the big-scale plan of God's plan of creation, fall, and re- restoration. So why should we use shame when we talk about things on a smaller scale, like individual people's lives? Mess-ups, failures. Obviously, sin isn't good needs to be dealt with, but the story of God's restoration in someone's life, fantastic, right? Something to be celebrated, not to be hidden away, but to be, um, to be glorified. The skill of God in putting us back together again. And by us, I think I mean all of us. I know I certainly mean myself. So um, what I'd like to do is uh, raise the lights a little bit. We're a little, uh, we're going to move around in just a second, okay? I'm going to put up um, some reflection questions on, on the screen here. And you can answer one of them, you can answer a few of them, you could put your own thought in there. But uh, if you were to travel around the room, I have put uh, one, two, three, four tables at the corners of the room. And there's a couple of sheets of paper uh, on the walls as well, okay? And there's some markers there. Don't steal the markers because they're my children. Uh, or my children's markers. They're not my children. Uh, um, what I'd like you to do is uh, take some time and respond to this. Now, the way this works is it's not time to go grab another tea. Okay? It's not time to chat. It's time to reflect. Okay? If I said to you, okay, I'll give you some time to think about that. Jesse came up, strummed a few chords, etc., etc. We'd all do that. This is simply another way of responding to God and, and thinking about how this applies to our own life and uh, how we can glorify and make much 
of uh, a God who does this kind of thing, who restores. Okay? And then we're going to come back and, and finish off the message. So um, what I'd like you to do is uh, it's a quiet, reflective process. Okay, So we're not going to have conversation during this time. But um, I want you to write something. Write a response to this. Write a question you have that's raised by this. Something about that verse or something about uh, the Kintsukura idea or uh, an example from your life, if you feel bold enough to share that in there. And it, I don't, we don't need an essay here, you know, just a few sentences or a thought, a phrase, right? But it's supposed to be a conversation. So it's a kind of a teacher trick for getting everybody involved, right? And so um, when you write something, travel around and see what other people have written. It's kind of like feedback graffiti. So if somebody writes something and you get a thought off of that, circle it or draw an arrow to it and write your thought. Can make the connection. Okay? And this side's a little heavier than this side, so some of you want to come over here. Let's spread around. And don't just go to one paper because people that generally sit together maybe kind of have the same experiences and think alike, but travel around to a few, few papers. Make some thoughts. I'm not going to strand you by suddenly talking and you're like over here and have to cut across in front of everybody, okay? I'll give you a heads up. But we'll take like five or six minutes just to make some thoughts, to reflect through the pen, okay? Uh, on this side, I've put the pens on the floor because I didn't have anywhere to put them. On that side, they're in the, the frames there on the side. Does that make sense? Any questions? Okay, go ahead. One other note is uh, don't, you know, don't line up. No elbowing or anything, but crowd around, right? And if you get a thought in the last minute, that's just as good as the thought in the first minute. So uh, enjoy responding by your feet and, uh, and through the pen. Okay, if you just want to finish up what you're writing there and... Hopefully that was a chance, um, just as people are finishing up, to uh, respond in a different way. We don't usually do that in church, so that way. And uh, just wanted to give you a chance to, to respond. Kintsukurai, the, the golden repair um, metaphor. Like all metaphors, they fail at some point, right? And it doesn't begin to contain the magnificence of what God's done, but it helps us a little bit to understand. God's glory and pleasure is in the restoration project the process. Right? And why do the marks still show on Jesus? God's joy was in Jesus, who is worthy of all honor because he was slain. Right? In uh, Philippians, verse 2, it talks about Philippians, verse 2. Here we go. That Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. God did what I couldn't. Fantastic verse. Every time I hear this verse, 
<laughs> I go back, and I'm sure my wife does too. We were on a, uh, a trip to Venezuela, and we were working uh, in Caracas there um, uh, in a missionary's uh, house, in a former drug dealer's house, but a uh, missionary lived there uh, then. And uh, it was back in 2001. And back in 2001, the Backstreet Boys were, like, huge, right? Not in my life, just in the world, right? But um, they were huge. And I remember the missionary talking about this, and the Backstreet Boys had just come to Caracas and played to this massive crowd, and everyone's, like, kind of worshiping them and exalting them and, like, can't wait to get them or get at them or whatever. And it just, he had this way of talking to the group of, of students that we were with, saying, you know what, I can't wait to see the Backstreet Boys bend their knee to Jesus. Right? And not that that's punitive, but that because we all will, right? But um, just the idea that that everyone will recognize what God has done. Everyone will see. Everyone will know these deep mysteries of God, that of why he did these things. And we kind of understand a bit of it, but I suspect that it's so much bigger and deeper than we know. Jesus paid for our sin and our separation from God by taking the punishment on himself becoming the substitutionary atonement, the payment for what we couldn't do. Not just that, well, you know, if I was there, I could have been crucified too. No, I'm not perfect. I can't, I can't lift myself up from the pit that I'm in. Right? I came across a, a website recently that uh, calculates how many sacrifices would have been made. And it tracks, um, and I, I'm not a Bible scholar, so I don't know if this is like completely accurate or whatever, but it, it tracks the, the bulls and the lambs and the goats um, and so on. Um, that would have been sacrificed because uh, they had daily sacrifices, they had weekly sacrifices, monthly, and yearly. And I kind of thought of sacrifices as kind of, you know, there's a yearly atonement one and so on, but man, there's a massive amount. Right? And I don't know, like, if this internet thing knows me or tracks me. We all wonder about this tracking thing and, you know, knows what a goofball I am. But you know what it calculated for me? I put in my year of my birth and I put in the current date and how many sacrifices, public sacrifices. This is outside of uh, voluntary um, kind of offerings and sacrifices. How many sacrifices would have been made during my lifetime? Over 67,000 crazy right thousands of animals were sacrificed in jewish worship over the years but these sacrifices never did pay for sin god instituted the practice of course but it was again a metaphor for helping people to understand what he values in hebrews uh, chapter 10 it says uh, for since the law has but a shadow has been but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near it can never make perfect those who offer the sacrifices otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. These sacrifices never did pay for sins. They were to point to Christ 
and help God followers recognize our need for forgiveness. As Christians, we enjoy a status of being forgiven, being righteous before God. Not that we're better, but that we're righteous, we're forgiven. God triumphs over sin through Jesus. Uh, Next slide here in Colossians. I love Colossians. In you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Think about those, the, the accumulation of sacrifices. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, uh, in that verse, rulers and authorities doesn't just mean earthly rulers and authorities. Sometimes they're called uh, rulers and principalities and so on. Um, It refers to spiritual ones as well, and usually in the negative in the Bible, and the the forces of evil. Disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in, in him, in Jesus. What a fantastic reversal. The shame, the humiliation of the cross, that's what it was, right? It wasn't, it wasn't a killing machine. They could have done that much easier. It was a, a spectacle. It was designed to crush the spirits, to prolong the agony in a public way of the person on the cross. And Jesus, of course, being on the cross, wasn't just like anybody else on the cross. He's bearing the weight of the sins of the whole world, including yours and mine. The shame and the public spectacle of Jesus' death on the cross is reversed. And here we've got the rulers and disarming the rulers and authorities and putting them to open shame by triumphing through Christ. Fantastic. Jesus' glory and pleasure is in the restoration process. Now, it's important to remember here that God just doesn't eke out a victory. He doesn't just like, you know, get the winning goal in the last minute kind of thing. Okay? There's actually no contest here. This is the creator facing off against one of his creations, the devil. Okay? It's, it's, there's no contest. I'm reminded of, uh, does anyone know the song? I think it's from the 70s. It's like 30 years before I was born, but it was... Um, it was Spanish Train by Krista Berg. Do, do anyone remember that one? Okay. Brad's nodding. Okay. Uh, yeah, it goes a little bit like... No, I'm not going to do that. Um, anyway, in this uh, song, which is very emotive and very um, you know, dramatic and builds to this conclusion, but uh, in, there's this uh, train that takes the soul of the dead kind of thing. And so um, the, the devil and God are facing off actually facing off across the bed of a guy that's sick and that's about to go on this train to the departed kind of thing. And uh, the devil challenges God to a poker game. And so God says, okay. And the devil's going for uh, something or other. God's going for a straight. Like, it's all, it's kind of silly. But the devil, just at the last moment, moment sneaks out a card. He's got an ace up his sleeve, literally, and sneaks it out and puts it into his hand. And he wins. Right, and it's kind of an interesting thing, but it's like totally flawed. Right, it's completely ignoring the omniscience of God, um, as well as a number of other factors there. Okay, 
But uh, sometimes we kind of think that way, don't we? Right? Oh, yeah, God will God will pull it out at the end there, right? You know, I think I yeah God will take this. There's there's no contest, okay? He dominates. This means that all of the junk of this world has a purpose in God's plan. He uses it. Doesn't cause evil, but he uses it in the outworking and the accomplishment of his glory. And what this means is that all the evil, particularly Satan of the world. Has, Satan has to be the most frustrated being in the universe. If God's in the restoration business, what's Satan going to do about that? Right? Every design that Satan has, every plan he has is thwarted by uh, an all-knowing, loving God, all-powerful God. There's no contest between God and evil. So when we talk about restoration... Let's not slip into some fallacy that, you know, God kind of just pulls out the victory at the end. He's planned it from the start. That's why he made us in the first place. So to conclude, God's pleasure is in his process. We've seen that God's a God of joy and that some of that joy comes from enjoying who he is. Some of it comes from what he's doing. A restoration process that's perfect. It's preordained. And it's the best way that he's determined to demonstrate his goodness, his faithfulness, and his mercy. So it makes me think, you know, we're somewhat familiar with evil and suffering. Somewhat. I don't think we've got a full grasp of it, but man, we feel it, right? We feel the pain of a disease. We feel the pain of of death. We feel the pain of anxiety or hatred. We've got some degree of familiarity with that concept. But we absolutely cannot fathom the extent of the goodness, the holiness, the love that God is and has planned for us to experience through him. The path that God has chosen for the creation, fall, salvation, restoration of creation is chosen from his initiates. The best revelation of his glory. The best expression of his love. Now, if we can somewhat picture the badness and the suffering and the pain, how much more is that goodness, that exhilarating love that awaits us? If our benevolent, all-knowing, all-powerful God knows that this is best, who are we to argue? What treasures in Christ do we have to look forward to? This is maybe especially poignant in the last 24 hours, with uh, multiple shootings in the states and so on. And uh, there's not the time uh, today to, to get into the theology of all that, but we can put that into the mix as well, as horrific as it is. We have some degree of understanding of the pain and suffering. Some. I don't think we have any understanding, or not much anyway, of the goodness and love and depth that awaits us through Christ. So my goal for today was that we would have time to reflect on God's outrageous, undeniably noble nature and worship him in deeper ways as we're encouraged by the fantastic mystery of who this God is and what he's doing through his perfect process, his restoration, his golden repair. And it reminds me of this verse from Colossians, and I'll end with this. 
uh, I hope this is our experience, that our hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So I'm going to pray. And uh, when you open your eyes, magically the band will appear behind me. And we'll sing one final song and, and be gone. Okay? So let's, let's pray. God, we want to acknowledge uh, who you are, what you've revealed to us of yourself today. And God, um, we can't fathom who you are. I love that we can't fully fathom that. But God, what you've shown us is incredible. And what you've promised us is immense. And when we say we have faith in you, God, we're trusting in that. We're not just trusting that you exist, but that you're active, that you heal, that you're in the restoration business. And God, we can all probably point out things in our lives where you have made golden scars uh, well again, that you have pieced us back together. And God, we want to thank you for that. Thank you for who you are, God. We praise you uh, for your qualities. We praise you that you're different than us. We praise you that you know and that you are and that you have uh, an understanding and a plan that is perfect. And so when we say we have faith in you, God, we want to say that we trust you with that plan. And uh, when it's hard, God, and when we're being broken, it's really tough for us, and you know that. But God, increase our faith. Help us with our belief in you and who you are. And God, we we love that you are um, a happy God, that you have joy in the restoration, because boy, do we need that. Thank you, God, for who you are. And we praise your name. In your name, amen.